Kendall Michelle Haney, and this is episode 9 of Type and Tunes. In this episode, I chat with Aaron Waltke about serialized storytelling. Aaron is a film and television writer and executive producer best known for Troll Hunters and Wizards Tales of Arcadia on Netflix, Unikitty on Cartoon Network, and the upcoming Star Trek Prodigy on Nickelodeon. Throughout our conversation, Aaron shares his wisdom both about serialized storytelling and world building and pitching big epic stories. Um, it was a really great conversation and I hope you enjoy. All right, so I'm here with Aaron Waltke. Aaron, thank you so much for being here today. Hey, my pleasure. Super excited to talk to you. Um, and as everyone at this point knows, we start with just going through sort of your journey to writing for animation. So what did that look like for you? Were you writing as a kid? Did you study in college? Where did your journey begin? Well, sure. You know, I, I'm sure you get this answer a lot, but uh, I was one of those people that was writing for as long as I could remember. You know, uh, I, a lot of it was really bad <laughs> and weird and deeply stupid. Yeah. But uh, it entertained me and my friends. You know, I, I grew up in uh, central Indiana. Uh, my, okay. my childhood home was literally between two cornfields. So the idea of making a career out of being a professional writer was sort mm -hmm. of, uh, I may as well said, you know, I, I want to live on Mars. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> my parents, you know, were supportive, actually. And I'm very, you know, I, I, I'm grateful for that. Uh, but yeah. I don't think they understood any of the stuff I was doing. They just yes. were like, well, as long as he's keeping himself busy, you won't, and isn't hurting anybody. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's harmless for now. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, I spent uh, my childhood. I, I grew up in sort of the late eighties, early nineties. I, I, mm -hmm. and so I, I was kind of like born of that era coming off of like the really wild high concept Amblin movies that I just kind of, yeah. I just kind of injected straight into my veins <laughs> and yes. I was just like, yes, Terminator, what happens when the predator <laughs> fights ET? I want to watch it. Uh, I, I like all of that stuff, cartoons, even, you know, that, that era of cartoons is very interesting yeah. because you know, uh, it's transformers as everybody knows, and a lot of similar cartoons, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles even, mm -hmm. they, you know, they may have started with some person's vision, but but very quickly, the, the cartoon form was very clearly designed to sell toys. But, yes. I, you know, and I was definitely the one who bought said toys, but I also paid attention to what the writers were doing. Like, we mm. weirdly, like I was obsessed with that kind of like those little nuggets of lore and, and serialized storytelling yeah. that they would, because nobody was paying attention, really. They were just like, as long right. as, you know, they, they sell candy bars, who cares? But like right. a lot of those shows, you know, Transformers had a really in-depth lore uh, mm -hmm. that that uh, was self-contained and, and it was sort of like my first exposure to that sort of like world building uh, you know on top of that I was really into Star Trek which I think also is very much in that sort of realm of uh, 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 you know taking little bits of lore and trying to keep them self somewhat self-consistent across 50 years of television uh, yeah, like my, my earliest memory is with my dad actually sitting on a couch. I remember seeing the, the battle bridge of the Enterprise separating from the saucer. Amazing. And there was just a sweeping fanfare of music playing. And I was like so excited and I had no idea why. And, you know, years later, I realized I was watching the, the, uh, 
the world premiere of Star Trek The Next Generation live as it premiered Amazing. in 1987 on the couch with my dad. And I think I was feeding off of his energy uh, of how he excited he was because he's a hardcore Trekkie and uh, he loved the original series. Uh, So like, I was just like, Oh, this is what brings joy to people. Um, Mm -hmm. You know? So I, I kind of grew up in this childhood, you know, where in the Midwest, we didn't have a lot to do. So we had to just kind of entertain ourselves. So me and my friends, would make up stories and sit on the playground and debate on whether the Lord of the Rings <laughs> would have uh, played out the same way if it was on the planet Arrakis, you know, just weird <laughs> what if scenarios just to kind of keep us entertained uh, until the school bell rang. And but you had friends who were, who were pretty into it too. Your friends were yeah, like willing to was, sort of engage on that level. Yeah. It was interesting. I, I wouldn't call us nerds, but we probably were <laughs> like, I, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. Uh, but we were definitely like, it felt almost like, I, I don't know if like punk is the right word. Cause it was, we were not punks. <laughs> we sure. were like, we, it was felt like counterculture. Like, Oh man, what yeah. if we all just read Dune together and then just like talked about it? Like you know, who's the Kwisatz Haderach. And, and, <laughs> <laughs> and we thought we were so cool and felt like we were getting away with something. But in retrospect, I'm pretty sure our parents are like, oh, good, they're reading. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. But, uh, it, but uh, um, it was like our secret club in a way of, of how awesome. we would kind of like, we, we would debate and talk. And, and, was, and that engendered a desire to kind of tell our own stories because, you know, <laughs> our internet was dial-up modem. And, you know, it, I think it took me... Uh, uh, like 10 hours just to upload one picture to my Lord of the Rings fan site when I was in middle school. So it was, it, we kind of had to invent our own uh, sort of way to keeping busy. Uh, you know, I, I started, yeah. we started goofing around with my parents' camcorder and stuff, making short films that okay. uh, are probably truly unwatchable, but we thought they were the cat's meow. Um, oh, yeah. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, I think the first contest I ever entered was in, I think sixth grade, uh, there was a church that had, for whatever reason, some sort of video contest. And we made like, I know, I'm I'm like, who is that for? (laughs) I guess, did they make it up for us? Uh, And they, uh, we entered this short film we did that was like a parody of a bunch of commercials or something. And we won first prize and won a hundred dollars. And that was the first time in my life I was like, oh my God, I I, I can make a living doing this. And my parents are just holding their foreheads like, oh, hopefully, hope it's a phase. Uh, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. Hi, mom and dad. Um, So anyway, uh, yeah, so we, you know, we would write short stories, make, make short films. It was like this weird, I don't even know if we would call it an art collective at the time. It just felt like a thing that we did because it was fun. Um, and so high school graduation rolled around and I remember like sitting with holding my mortar board in my cap and gown, waiting for my name to be called up. And, you know, I had, I had expressed an interest in psychology and I had actually declared a major uh, as, as psychology because, uh, you know, my dad, uh, who's a dentist and isn't like a traditionally creative person, his best friend growing up was a, um, a, a psychiatrist and had his own practice. And he just sort of was like, uh, you know, you'll go to college, you'll get your undergrad in like a, a BS, and then you'll uh, get a PhD, and then you'll join my Mark's firm. Oh, and then, and I was just kind of like looking down the barrel of the next 30 plus years of my life. And yeah. I, I literally was just like, I remember this moment so vividly, I turned to my dad he's like, Dad, I think I want to make movies. <laughs> and, Barely and, getting the words out. Yeah. Movie. 
Yeah. And to, to his credit, he, he, they, you know, he thought there for a second and he turned and, and turned to my wife and he's like, and he was like, look, we don't care what you do as long as you do your best, which mm-hmm. is, you know, the best I could have hoped for. I've heard yeah. of other pe- people's parents that are less supportive until they make an, a living. I did find yeah. out later from my dad, like last year that after that, he turned to his wife, my mother and said, we're going to be supporting that boy for the rest of his life. <laughs> Thankfully, that's not the case, but uh, right, but yet still supportive in a way. Like it's funny yeah. that he wasn't just like no, he yeah, was more he, like great. It's now on us for exactly. Yeah. And I, I think that that's the best you can really hope for anybody because I think this is such a, a wild and unpredictable business. You know, yes, it's it's sort of like practicing the Buddhist concept of metta, which is loving kindness. You just wish the best for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> knowing how bad it can be right. uh, yeah um yeah well there's well there's so many roads to Rome. i think when it comes to writing uh for animation or live action or any sort yeah. of creative endeavor and that's you know i i often am approached by people that ask asking for advice and whatnot and and i always say i can give you my path but it's not going to be the only one uh you know yes. it's the metaphor I always heard that I that feels weirdly right. It's a weird metaphor, but like imagine the entertainment industry is like a dam. There's and everybody's like swimming and having a good time, but you're on the other side of the dam, and the only way you can get in is if there are crack forms, and then you can, you quickly swim through that crack, and mm. then they seal it up, and they're like that shouldn't have been open. <laughs> like, right. That yeah. that weirdly is you know it, it it becomes a lot of preparation meets luck, you know. Yeah. And so you prepare, prepare, prepare. And then hopefully just one day there'll be that little crack in the dam and you can swim right through. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of what my journey was, right? So like I um, I went to college and I, I was in the Hutton Honors College at Indiana University, which was very cool because it afforded me the ability to join like a, a bunch of different cross curricular sort of uh, uh, fields. So that's the advice I always give everybody is like, you know, if you want to study film and you should to a certain degree to understand how to structure a story and what makes a good story and whatnot, but also make sure that you're a well-rounded individual because ultimately to be a good writer, you need to have something to write about that isn't just Tarantino movies are cool, (laughs) Um, which is a mistake I think some people make is like they only study other movies and then they Mm -hmm. forget that they need to develop their own voice and their own point of view. And thankfully, I accidentally did that. (laughs) I put so little (laughs) thought into it other than just like these are cool classes and I want to learn about them. Yeah. And I'm, and but knowing full well, I'm like, I'm never going to use any of this material in my life. Ironically, I can point to like multiple one of those classes that, I, that have directly led to writing yes. jobs or informed my writing, you know, 10 years later. So I lucked out. That's luck <laughs> on my part that, that this weird shit. Oh, sorry. Can I swear? You're fine. Yeah. Okay. The weird stuff that I was, uh, I was randomly taking classes and wound up paying off. Yeah. Um, so like, you know, I, I, I was sort of a double major, you know, I, I cr- took classes in telecommunications, learned how to operate mm-hmm. cameras, light a scene, you know, edit, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But I also took a lot of classes in in the humanities. You know, I took a class in astronomy. I took a class in um, like medieval uh, court life. I took a class 
in um, you know Beethoven, the history of Beethoven, and you know through all these sort of like weirdly hyper specific topics, I started to get a broader understanding of topics like you know the history of music and mm-hmm. um, medieval studies and physics, and and uh, it slowly kind of formed a albeit probably warped worldview uh, of, of how the world works and what interests me. And, and, yeah. uh, and I also joined a sketch comedy troupe, uh, which was okay. really fun uh, in college. It was called boy in the bubble. Uh, and it, it was their, the oldest sketch comedy troupe there. And it was weirdly a great training ground for a writer's room because mm-hmm. it was a very large tr- uh, troupe. It was all, you know, we were all just college kids or whatever, um, and there was, uh, about 20 members at any one time. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. They, and people would fade in and out based on how sure. busy they were that week, but we would put on a brand new show with brand new sketches every other week, uh, which is a lot, feels like a lot of work and kind yeah. of insane, but yeah, also yeah, yeah. a great boot camp for, for production turnaround. Yes. Uh, yes. and on top of that, like, you know, we would come in and vote on which sketches got in, you know, so you would cool. bring, bring in your sketch, you'd rehearse it, you'd cast it, uh, and then you'd perform it for the group. And then, you, you know, only the top 10 or 15 sketches, depending on how long they were, would, would, uh, be performed that week. And if yours rejected, you would get notes, you'd go home, you could revise wow. it, try to submit it again. And so it was like weirdly this kind of like proto writer's room uh, yeah. that informed my writing a lot, you know, because I, I went in, I, when I started college, I deeply wanted to be Wes Anderson for some reason. And <laughs> don't we you know, all, That's I know he's got it made, man. Uh, but over time, I realized there can only be one of him. And, you know, I, I needed to kind of develop my own sense of humor. So I, at first I tended to write very sort of cerebral, like sort of hyper intellectual sketches. And sometimes mm-hmm. they would go over well, but then sometimes I would work so hard in a thing and it'd get like a few polite chuckles. And then uh, the next guy would come in screaming about a magic pie. And then like, it would literally tear the house down. And I'm like, wow, that guy's clearly doing something right. Uh, and it became it kind of expanded my horizons as far as my tastes in comedy. Cause I, I, it, that stuff does make me laugh, but for some reason I hadn't given my permission to be dumb sometimes mm. or be silly or absurdist. And, you know, uh, uh there's a, a term that I absolutely love and winds up being in almost all, not, I don't put it in my scripts, but it becomes sort of like a, uh, a calling card of my scripts. It's called bathos, which basically means like taking a really intense, uh, grandiorous situation and then suddenly deflating with it, deflating it with something unexpected or or dumb or stupid, you know? And I feel like that sort of humor is really a hallmark of the sort of stuff I like to write. And, you know, I, it was the the sort of things that I, I kind of learned while doing sketch comedy, you know? So eventually, you know, I, I did, I I also, while I was there, the, uh, Indiana university had like, uh, documentary class and where you would actually make documentaries for PBS and they would air on, on cool. the local, we had a PBS station there that we were partnered with. So I got to direct a couple of PBS uh, documentaries there. Uh, and so like, I was kind of getting the whole package of yeah. like understanding the production side, also just under, being a student of humanity through the documentary side 
and also just like how to how to have fun and be creative boundlessly, uh, which is I got through the sketch comedy side. And on top of that, I was just taking a bunch of classes that we had. It had like a great opera program. So I got to go to see operas. They have experimental theater that I participated in. I I directed a one act play uh, that was written by Bertolt Brecht uh, called the, the Beggar and the Dead Dog. Uh, and you know, I, I think it was if what's the if off Broadway is like off off Broadway is fifty people. This must have been off 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 Broadway, <laughs> but it went over well, and the people did a great like our, our cast did a great job, and it, it yeah. really kind of gave me that bug of just telling stories, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so I graduated, and I had all these great co- sketch comedy friends and these great filmmaker friends who I made some short films with in college. Um, and ultimately we, you know, there's a few of us that were very serious, uh, about really giving a go of it, you know, cause at the time, it, at, at the time, you know, the film program at Indiana university was a little bit sort of scattershot. They've since rejuvenated it and taken all of the random classes that I took and folded them into one, uh, like top-notch media school. But at the yeah. time it was just sort of like fend for yourselves, do, <laughs> do whatever yep. you want. If you're lucky, you'll wrap cables at a Pacers game one day. <laughs> um, fingers so, crossed. yeah, fingers crossed. Uh, so uh, but I, I knew that it would be very hard, I think, to make a living making documentaries in central Indiana. There's not much sure. of a film scene there. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I dabbled a little bit in in the production side of things. You know, I, I had interned uh, and eventually became like the dolly grip on a, a really low budget indie horror uh, made by uh, Travis Betts that he shot way up uh, in north, northern Indiana for, through people that I met. Uh, of guest speakers, uh, Jess Patel oh, in particular. She was a producer of the film. And I came up to her afterward and said, uh, I want to make movies. Uh, how can I help? And she invited me up for the summer to, to learn how to, what a real film set or at least a low budget awesome. film set was like. Um, and then, you know, at, beyond that, uh, I had a few people that I moved to Los Angeles with. And then okay. when I moved here, I only knew maybe like three, four or five people. And a couple of them were my aunt and uncle who live in Camarillo and are not in the <laughs> entertainment industry at all. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I, I kind of reached out to the few people that I did know, you know, uh, like, and Jess Patel, the producer who I mentioned, <laughs> she was very involved. She was an, uh, an alumni of Indiana university as well. Uh, and she, uh, had this sort of network that she had been building that was that was called Hollywood Hoosiers that she invited me to. to oh, build, cool! Which was great. Yeah. It, it yeah. suddenly there was this. Uh, they'd have these events where they would like make mixed drinks from a from a local bar in Bloomington, which is where the college was, uh, and you know, and we'd all hang out. And the whole express purpose was just to connect people from IU. Yes. You know. Yes. And it it was that was really great. But also uh, one of the people that I was in a sketch comedy group with, uh, he moved out a year earlier than me, and he had managed to land an entry level position at uh, National Lampoon, um, okay. which, you know, they, they knew they had Animal House and Chevy Chase Vacation and movies and uh, Van Wilder. And, you know, just from like Christmas vacation alone, I think Chev- like National Lampoon was like a hallowed hall in, in my household growing up because they, yeah. they really loved my dad. He's like, I love it when the cat chews on the electric cable. 
so they at least knew that. And so when I said, mom and dad, I got a, you know, I, 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 at first I asked if I could just come in and shadow. And then I showed up and I saw a huge stack of what were then called mini DV tapes that, you know, everything is now purely mm-hmm. digital, but this was like an inter- intermediary medium that they had filmed all these sketches, but no one there knew how to really uh, edit or, or there was no dedicated like edit writer producer type person. So yeah. I had that skill in my skill set, and I knew comedy from the sketch comedy stuff. So I was like, if you want, I could take a crack at it. Amazing. Uh, and so I, I digitized the tapes, and then I kind of used all of my skills and know how that I had accumulated from the production side of things, and also just the comedic timing for the sketch comedy side. Mm-hmm. And I cut it together into this. Uh, uh, you know, silly little YouTube video because uh, at the time there was this newfangled thing called YouTube that everyone was trying to figure out how to make money off of. Um, so uh, we uploaded it onto the National Lampoon YouTube channel just to see what it would do, and it and it went viral. And and yeah. you know, then the editor in chief of National Lampoon came in, a, a very nice uh, fellow uh, named Scott Rubin, uh, and he came in and said, "So uh, you just did all that, huh?" You just did that by yourself. <laughs> and I said, yeah, that was me. Uh, so, uh, and to their credit, you know, like a few weeks later, they put off, put in an offer to hire me. Uh, wow. And so that was my first like paying job to make comedy. You know, I, I had done a little freelance YouTube uh, things here, there in college mm-hmm. with some friends, a series called Destructo Box. Uh, and then, you know, interestingly, they eventually sold that animated series to a company called Mondo Media. Uh, who, you know, they were most known for uh, back in the mid 2000s for a web series called Happy Tree Friends. <laughs> that was sort of like a really dark adult satire of children's uh, like yeah. preschool cartoons where they would get violently like maimed and stuff. Sure. Uh, but they, but uh, I mentioned YouTube, well, Google bought YouTube and then kind of picked out, you know, 13, they had this program where they picked out 13 random channels and mm-hmm. uh, said, just gave them a million dollars each and said, make stuff. And uh, part of that was my friends managed to sell a web series through that. Uh, and so they were, they said, hey, you do comedy and stuff. You wrote some stuff for us in college. Uh, why don't you come, you know, sort of be on our like mini staff. And, cool. you know, it was not, it was, again, it was, it was this sort of like little break. It, it was yeah. by no means I could never I couldn't pay the bills with it. It was basically pizza money, but we were all friends and we were making something uh, mm-hmm. that could, that uh, other people would watch. And that's always kind of been my mantra, I think with, with any sort of creative endeavor is like, uh, and it served me very well over the years, which is, I always say, who can I find who agrees with me that uh, all of this is about just making cool stuff with cool people, you know? Yeah. And that's always been my sort of uh, lodestone in navigating mm-hmm. what projects I want to work with and who I want to work with. And, and uh, it's, it's, I think, at the heart of some people who are successful in this industry, it's because you've kind of found your tribe. You've found those people yeah. who share your sensibilities and, and they're like, oh, man, I, I, you know who'd be great for that? Kendall, you know, like, or whatever. And, and you get to yeah. keep making cool stuff with cool people. Right. Uh, and so- it sounds like seizing those opportunities. I think that's been key in everyone's journey. It's like, if there's an opportunity, you go at it full force and do the best job you can. Like you probably didn't set out to edit sketches, but when that presented itself, you were going to crush it. Yeah. And that, and 
it, it wound up opening the door for me to like pitch yeah. my own sketches and you know I and I got to become a producer to that so it's like you know mm-hmm. it's it, you know I yeah it's one of those things where uh you you have like a little cinder uh on, that that lands on some kindling and if you can kind of blow yeah. the flames just right you know you can hopefully uh, ignite something very interesting and exciting yes. to be a part of um yeah in terms of of yeah like uh, seizing opportunities too my my rule for that has always been can i see a great way that it could be a, an awesome project that i would be a proud of you know and and so like and it, that doesn't mean it has to be just my idea, but, but if it's right. like, if I see potential in it where like, I would be excited to work on it, if I could tell these types of stories and then I, yeah. I go to them and say, Hey, what if we did something like this? And they respond positively, then suddenly you have the seeds of a great collaboration, you know, and hopefully that the, 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 the two of you together can make something uh, even cooler by just yes anding each other. Uh, mm-hmm. And finding, creating some unique uh, new cartoon or movie or TV show that neither of you would have thought to do on your own. So that's that's what ex- excites me the most. I think about working in in television, especially, is it's so collaborative and it's like you get to basically <laughs> work in an art commune. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, two years later in animation, the people will pay you compliments for it. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you can be like, oh, good job past me. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, I barely remember that, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, anyway, I worked at National Lampoon for a little while. Um, and then uh, eventually this was during the first recession <laughs> back Great. in 2007 2008 so it, like like my path to moving to los angeles was uh hey have a recession hey have a writer strike <laughs> and then it was just yeah. what if the industry you're working it just collapses <laughs> um and cool thanks universe mom and dad were right <laughs> <laughs> but no i was too stupid i just was like ah oh, it, it'll pass uh and <laughs> i'll just keep you were doing right uh, yeah i guess so uh, and, and then that, it came again yeah and that, it's but it, that's i think that perseverance is really always mm-hmm. going to be the name of the game you know um you you just get you get knocked down you pick yourself back up you know especially when you're pitching original ideas you're going to hear a lot of no's you're going to knock on doors until your knuckles bleed but then eventually uh it only takes one yes and then suddenly yeah. you have that that door crack open and it's up to you to kind of pry it all the way through and see what riches you can steal from this imaginary idea dungeon that I've invented. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, yeah. So I, I, after National Lampoon kind of yeah. uh, went under, I guess at the time yeah. is the best, the most polite way to say it. Thanks to the, the, the recession, uh, a number of people that I met through there, uh, yeah, got job working in reality TV. So uh, I wound up, they said, hey, do you want to help produce and edit uh, and develop uh, reality television? And, you know, as I, I said before, I'd worked in documentary work and I was like, sure, right. that sounds like worth exploring, way to pay the bills. Uh, and so, you know, probably the most notable thing I helped sell was Real Housewives of Miami. So Perfect. you're welcome. Yeah, I think endless <laughs> gratitude. <laughs> Uh, it was a fun time. And again, I, I tried to treat it like being a student of life, you know, because sure. I, I, working in development, you'll go out and just find interesting people and just film them for 30 hours and, and watch them do their thing, you know, and as the person who uh, was kind of behind the scenes, you know, 
piecing this together into like sizzle reels to take out and like what how do you as you know just almost by osmosis i was kind of absorbing like i feel pretty confident like we, we pitched an idea that was like uh uh following professional ice sculptors who go all around the world and ice sculpt and by the end of that project i was like i think i know how to ice sculpt now i should go become an ice sculptor uh, and it was just kind of like that over and over again for all these just sort of random topics that never yeah. left my brain which is it wound again at the time it was a lot of work and but it weirdly also just learning how to edit a scene concisely mm-hmm. i think in a professional manner is is a really important uh thing that will inform your writing because yeah. you know i, I was I, weirdly when i started to really it was around this time that I, I stopped just performing sketch comedy at like UCB and, and uh, um, IO West and such and the comedy store and tried to really get my writing off the ground. And I was like, and okay. when you're, when you're editing a sizzle reel, like I say, you have to comb through hours and hours of footage just to find that establishing shot, just to hear that perfect line that feels like a good intro to this character. Yeah. And, but then when you're writing, you're like, Oh, I can just write that. Oh, this is a breeze. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I, I started kind of, uh, I, I started treating writing as a second job, you know, okay. uh, and really nights and weekends, I was in total between my day job and my night job of writing. It wound up, uh, it was like 70 hour work weeks. It was a lot, but yeah. it was, but because half of it was the thing I was really passionate about. Uh, it, it felt, if anything, more like a release, almost like a, mm-hmm. a, a chance for me to, to creatively express myself while mm-hmm. potentially giving myself future opportunities. Um, you know, eventually, you know, one of those people that I had, I had met through my college, uh, uh, Michael Diamond, uh, he's somebody who I had made some short films with in college and we became great friends, you know, and he was one of those interesting people that, that uh, he was like a business major and he was like, you know, I... Uh, I, I don't, I'm not really a writer, but I want to produce movies. And I was like, Ooh, I need to know him. I need to keep, I, and after we chatted and stuff, uh, we actually hit it off cause he loved film. He loves good food awesome. and we just yeah. became friends, you know? Um, but eventually he, he moved out. He's one of the people that moved out with me and he got right. into the UTA training program and became a junior manager. And then just as I was starting to get this, uh, you know, this writing off the ground and getting little, little web series off and such mm-hmm. sold, you know, I, I had lunch with him and I was like, look, I'm really serious about this. You know, the business side of things way better than me. You know, I, I just want to make stuff. Uh, if you have advice to give me, give it to me. And he said, and, you know, he was starting out, he was looking for clients and he was like, look, how about I do what's called hip pocket you, you know, anytime an animation uh, gig comes across my desk or whatever, I'll send it your way. If you want to meet with them, just have a general. And if something comes of it, then, you know, we'll work together. And so that was kind of where I was at, you know, for a couple of years where a few, I would freelance on this or that. Um, okay. you know, I would go out for open writing assignments. And then at one point there was a company called, uh, Waterman entertainment that, uh, they had produced, uh, the Stuart little movies and, uh, the Alan and the chipmunk movies, which made like a crazy amount of money. Uh, so that yeah. became sort of their bread and butter of, uh, of finding, uh, a, you know, uh, no known IPs optioning them and then trying to reconfigure them as uh, live action CGI sort of mm-hmm. comedies, right? Uh, four quadrant type uh, yeah. uh, humor. Uh, and so I went in there um, 
with my writing partner at the time, Chad Quant. And, you know, we want, we were, um, we heard their whole spiel and we looked at their list of, of possible uh, uh, IPs. And then right in there, there was a movie that I suddenly perked up. I was like, oh, you have the rights to the Brave Little Toaster? And, and which, you know, I had, that's, for those who don't know it, it was uh, a movie that came out in the late 80s. It was mm-hmm. like a, a 2D movie from Disney that uh, weirdly, everybody who worked on that that movie uh, wound up to then were all poached and then went on to found Pixar. So it ha- it's like way better than it probably should have been. Right. Yeah. And it became this weird like sleeper hit on VHS. Like it was a bomb in the box office, but it was one of the first animated films released on VHS. And so yeah. for everybody like me, it sounds like you too, yeah. you know, you just watch that over and over again as a kid and it, until it's like burned in your brain forever. Uh, so yeah. on the fly, we just start, I, I was like, oh, Brave Little Toaster, you know, it has a lot of really great themes. And we, we just proceeded to have a conversation about how I was like, there's a lot of stories about like, uh, you know, taking care of what you have and the evils of planned obsolescence and, and sort of disposable capitalism. And I just kind of riffed a little bit, just discuss, sure. discussing what I loved about the project. And then I left and then we got a call uh, on our way out. I was like, I don't know what you said to them, but they want you to write the Brave Little Toaster movie. <laughs> so Amazing. Yeah. So uh, we got to write uh, uh, the Brave Little Toaster film, <laughs> wrote a few drafts of that. Uh, it's still in development somewhere. Uh, <laughs> but suddenly I, you know, I think it was one more notch that made me feel, yeah. look like I was a real writer. You know, Uh, so and that's I think that's maybe one takeaway that might be helpful to a lot of your listeners is like, rarely is it one big break. Uh, It's always just like a lot of little breaks that kind of snowball together uh, and and eventually create something that kind of looks like a career. Um, Right. And it's the things that you can bring up in these general meetings when somebody happens to read a script and they say, tell me about yourself. You can wow them by talking about all these little things in ways that make you sound like, oh, you're, you're an up and coming writer. We want to work with Mm -hmm. this person. Um, So simultaneously with that, you know, through alumni networks, uh, you know, I got to meet a lot of really great people like uh, Katie Krentz, for instance, who at the time was director of development at Cartoon Network. And Mm -hmm. she also happened to be an IU alumni. Uh, So she came to one of these events and she was friends with Jess Patel and we we hit it off and became good friends. And now we're actually collaborating on Star Trek together. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. So, you know. It just goes to show you that that uh, you know building your network of friends in in the, in the yes. industry it's a very organic process you know very it's- organic and I think what's people sometimes forget or don't know to pursue is it's usually it's that peer level it's not trying to reach people who are so many steps ahead of you or you're trying to get it's making real connections with those at the same level as you around you and rising together. Yeah, it's absolutely rising tides raise all ships, in my opinion. And that's the advice I always give It's like, you know, you can reach out to upper level people and they might have an opportunity for you here or there. But ultimately, your biggest resource are the people that are around you right now that want to do the same thing. Because if you've if you've uh, chosen your friends well, you're all going to be rooting for each other. And you're all going to be there to keep an ear to the ground if they happen to get an opportunity that and like oh there's a writer pa position here or whatnot um you know i i i desperately wanted to get into a writing fellowship uh, or get a writer's assistant job 
uh, it was, I did not, <laughs> it was very hard for me, uh, you know, I, I, because I think those are very sought after roles, but, uh, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm perhaps an object lesson that it can happen even if you don't get those perfect yeah. entry-level jobs, you know? Um, so I, 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 uh, Katie at the time was very kind, probably kinder than she had to be. <laughs> um, and, you know, kept putting me up for all these kind of cool, uh, shows and stuff interviewed for oh, great. To be the head writer you know on Clarence and We Bear Bears and uh and but uh you know we always would get to just to that spot uh where they were like going to hire us and then and then they'd be like oh actually we the producers hired somebody that has written animation tv already and yeah so I, I was gonna ask so at that point are they are you using just samples at that point are you using the brave little toaster work as like your way in what's sort of what you're showing producers or what katie's yeah. giving to producers yeah of course so it, it, it was i think it was the combo of the knowledge you know on your bio that you have to write saying they're currently writing the brave little toaster movie yeah you know in caps but then you send them a writing sample that you think that w- w- they would uh, respond to right so um, we, I, I had written a few solo samples. I'd written some with Chad and, you know, we okay. were just kind of sending everything out to see where it landed. You know, um, you know, Six Point Harness really liked our stuff. Um, uh, you know, Cartoon Network really liked our stuff. And then eventually uh, a, we, we wrote a, a sample that was like a, um, at the time, you may remember this period where there was, where they were saying like action adventure is dead. Like don't write an action adventure cartoon. Yeah. Like, uh, of course, now we know retroactively that's because the Nielsen ratings were actually just not working anymore. And pe- right. everybody was watching everything on streaming and on demand. They, they didn't know that. And they just thought that meant that anything that didn't get live viewers was a failure. And so, yeah. <laughs> which it seems like people are wising up to that now. Now that we're in the streaming wars, we're all soldiers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, <laughs> uh, but at the time, everyone is like, don't write action adventure. Action adventure is dead. Skew very young, just pure comedy. But I had this, you know, I had this idea that I wanted to write. And so I, I, I was like, at, let's just do it. Uh, so we, it, it wound up being this really great, um, uh, really great. Like my, my right. Go on. My writing was really great. Uh, it was a great opportunity, I should say. It, it, yeah. And, you know, I, I, when I was saying luck meets preparation, this is one yeah. of those things where part of your preparation, I think is just trusting your gut and creating as many sort of samples and opportunities for yourself as possible so that way, right when the stars align and mm-hmm. everything can go uh, your way, you're you're locked and loaded with you know the perfect thing to give you the best chance possible. So in this case, uh, I wrote a or co-wrote a script that was sort of like an action adventure, um, sort of a teenage Buffy esque kind of like imagine if uh, Hunter S. Thompson was a teenage girl that uh, sort of a gonzo journalist who in charge of a student newspaper at her high school. But then you drop that character into HP Lovecraft's new England, where the more you investigate, the more you're likely to encounter a cosmic horror that will drive you insane. Yeah. Uh, so that was the sample that, you know, unbeknownst to us, DreamWorks uh, suddenly really responded to it. Cause uh, at the time, like a good friend of mine, uh, Greg White, 
who I had met through my comedy stuff uh, at the LA Improv and stuff. Uh, He was somebody who had broken into animated television much sooner than me. Uh, And he, I think his first gig was on Ugly Americans on Comedy Central and he did it like 25 or 26. (laughs) I was just like, I want to be you. Um, (laughs) But uh, he was like, he knew I was writing movies and such, but he he was also uh, like, he knew that I wanted to write TV and, you know, just through our lunches and stuff. He was like, you should send your stuff over to uh, DreamWorks, they had just hired him to be the story editor on Puss in Boots, the animated Great. series. And he was like, mm-hmm. uh, apparently Netflix has uh, ordered $3.1 billion worth of content with a B. Uh, and uh, yeah. uh, basically what that amounted to was they said, here's a, here's a sack of money, make 13 shows, go. <laughs> um, and what so this is where the luck meets uh, preparation. You know, the luck aspect is all those veteran TV writers I kept losing out on jobs to, even though my <laughs> script was on the pile over there. Uh, they all got hoovered up to write these other TV shows, but then they still had six more shows to make. So they're like, "Well, who else right. is available?" Yeah. Um, and that sample, the supernatural teen uh, high school sample, uh, wound up being. Uh, a perfect sample for this new show that they they were like we might be making with Guillermo del Toro called Troll Hunters. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, and that that's sort of like it just happened to have the right key to fit that keyhole. That you know, even if they were reluctant to hire me, as they have always were to, for my first <laughs> TV writing gig, uh, they uh, I later found out that you know some of the producers read it and like, oh, I get it. They, they, they can write troll hunters because they already did on their own. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was how I broke into, into TV writing, um, okay. you know, full time. Uh, and that was mid 2014, something like that. Um, mm-hmm. And it just kind of, after that, it was sort of off to the races, you know, it, uh, I kept, I kept in touch and, and kept collaborating with all these great people just as troll hunters winding down. That was 52 episodes ordered sight unseen. Yeah. So that kept us Wild. busy for almost two years, but just as that was winding down, some of my friends at six point hardest, uh, uh, Ed, um, Scudder and Lynn Wang, who, uh, they had done some, some of those little cartoon shorts with us uh, that we had at Mondo Media. They sold a spinoff of the Lego movie called Unikitty mm-hmm. to Cartoon Network. Mm-hmm. And they said, hey, we want you to come over and, and be one of our head writers uh, on this. And we said, okay. <laughs> so, yeah. and, uh, and then after that, you know, uh, they, as just as Unikitty was winding down, then uh, DreamWorks came calling and said, hey, we want you to come back and co-executive Bruce and co-show run the final installment of the Troll Hunters Tales of Arcadia series. And we said, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, yeah. And then after that, you know, just as that was winding down, the, the Hagemans had an office next to mine mm-hmm. uh, on the DreamWorks campus because they were writing the forthcoming uh, Tales of Arcadia movie. And they had some good meetings with uh, Nickelodeon and CBS and Secret Hideout. And they were like, hey, I think they want us to write a Star Trek uh, show. Do you know anything about Star Trek? And I'm like, do I ever? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, like that that got greenlit and they uh, they pulled me over to be a, a writer and producer and help run that show. And uh 
it, and it, you know, it's just, that's been pretty much the last 15 years of my life is, wow. you know, and, uh, uh, I would say each time I, I take on a new show, you know, I would just do my best to try to be, bring my best ideas forward. Uh, but also, you know, okay, this is what the showrunner or this is what the, the, the studio bought or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do I make that a cool version and bring my best self to that while still playing in the box that they've set up? And I right. think that that sort of collaborative approach is why people kept coming back to me saying like, oh, he's the guy that makes, <laughs> that spins gold out of nothing. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, I'll take that reputation, I guess. You say so, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, but, uh, and I also just have a lot of weird, like multifaceted interests. So <laughs> whenever yeah. things, uh, uh, you know, would get sort of like stuck in a writer's room, I could just be like, I went to clown college, which I did, by the way. Well, um, we skipped over a very important <laughs> detail of this journey. There's a lot of weird stuff in my past <laughs> that I just forget about. Yes. And so my dad, I mentioned was a dentist, but, uh, he did have aspirations <laughs> this is the story just keeps getting weird uh so he had aspirations to at least have some creativity and bring joy to other people i think that's probably the best way to say it yeah so he he founded he founded a clown college and uh it it was called come join us clowns it was it was sort of like associated (laughs) with our local church uh and they 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 brought in people they did like a three-month course and then wow. you know, we performed sketches and stuff as clowns for, um, uh, you know, for the elderly and for uh, uh, like we would go to hospitals, perform for sick kids and stuff. It was actually very wholesome and very it's nice. amazing. But yeah. it, it is really fun to tell people I was a clown for a period right. of time. Um, <laughs> and also that your dentist father founded it. I feel like that just takes it to a level. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but they brought like it's a whole cottage industry, man. Like they, like when they said, you know, they raised the funds to to put it together, but and you yeah. know, they there were like people that they brought in instructors who taught us how to do the magic tricks and and the wow. it, was, it was real. It was a real thing. That's cool. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Um good for your church too. They've got a film festival, they've got a clown college. I They're know. Really... <laughs> I like my my church was rad in retrospect. Yeah. So so let's back up just a little bit to the animation specific part of it. Was that yeah. on your radar when you moved out here? When did you sort of decide or did you ever, or did you fall into it that animation was something you were really into? Sure. Well, yeah. So, you know, if you can't tell my sense of humor is a little left of center, it's a little oddball. Yeah. Um, so I really loved kind of absurdism meets okay. sort of cosmic existential horror you know and like very specifically strange and whatnot and so all the stuff I made tended to be in that realm um and the places I found that I could really express that the most were in a sketch comedy because so Mm -hmm. much of it is sort of theater of the mind right so you can go to those out there places and you're just in like a black box theater and people are kind of expected to just kind of imagine it right but yeah the other places that I could cut, I always like, I love cartoons always never stopped watching them. And that's where I, I, uh, I was like, Oh, I could also write cartoons because they're the ones that are actually doing the cool stuff. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, and when I first started out, you know, back in 2007, 2008, the conventional wisdom was like, well, if you want to write comedy, you know, so you want to write for everybody loves Raymond. Right. And I'm like, well, 
no. And but that those were like the main comedy jobs out there. You know, this was pre, right. This was before um, you know, arrested development, I think, or maybe I don't remember. Anyway, there weren't a lot of there wasn't a lot of experimental yeah. comedy out there. Uh and it was still the name of the game was just trying to get on onto one of those multicams. Uh, but mm-hmm. I, I that wasn't really you know, I was, to be honest with myself, that wasn't really what I was into. Like if I wrote a multicam, it would probably be something like WandaVision, where it's just like right. true, truly bizarre and moments of <laughs> David Lynchian kind of terror and yes. a, a mystery, and, you know, um, wound in with all of this sort of like patently absurd humor that right. we're carrying on with in the face of this uh, uh uh, existentialism. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so that was something that I think nobody ever told me I wasn't supposed to be interested in writing for cartoons. Yeah. So I, I just said like, yeah, I want to do it. And yeah, I think that actually set me apart somewhat. Uh, yeah. You know, because I think a lot of people did see animation writing just as like a stopgap or as a, a stepping stone to go write for Everybody Loves Raymond. But I was like, no, the animation is where it's at. Like they're doing yes. like nobody's paying attention. So we're getting away with everything. Right. <laughs> um, and so that that was always something that I would love to do. And I'd love to continue to do, you know, yeah. and, and even as my career moves forward, like I'd love to do live action stuff and still do animation. I feel like. Right. And I, I don't think that that's unusual. Like, just look at Lord and Miller's slate. They just keep kind of, yeah. they, they're like, we love animation. We love live action. Let's just do it all. And, you know, I, I love that there's now a path forward and a very strategic path forward of of kind of taking people that have those sort of outrageous ideas and that, that love of genre uh, yeah. and uh, harnessing them. Like, you know, just the transformation uh, that's happened in the last 20 years where, now everything is Marvel and Star Wars. Like I, I was like looking at my Apple Apple TV lineup, and it was just like The Mandalorian, WandaVision, <laughs> Star Trek Discovery, and I'm like, oh my god, the the nerds won! We did it! <laughs> uh, and so like it it was something that I it, it I loved it, and that's where people kept giving me opportunities. So I was like, you know, I clearly got to chase that bliss. And it's wound up very nice for me. So, you know, I, I think that's that's another piece of advice I tend to give people is like, don't don't try to chase trends just because you think that yeah. it's popular or that will sell, you know, because worst case scenario, let's say you hate rom-coms. There's nothing wrong with rom-coms, but let's say you hate rom-coms, but for some reason, there's a bunch of rom-coms that are selling. And so you, you sit down and you just kind of hate write a rom-com and then you turn in your manager and then best case scenario, someone buys it. And then they're like, right. oh, oh, okay. Now let's go to him. He's the rom-com guy. And then, yeah. then your life is writing things you don't like. <laughs> like it, it's, yeah. it, you know, you're creating a prison, a glass cage of emotion of your own creation. <laughs> uh, you know, you have to be able to just chase what, what inspires you. And hopefully yeah. along the way, you'll inspire others. Uh, you know, it reflects on the page, it reflects on the screen. Uh, your yes. passion is paramount. Yes. I was going to say, you can tell when you're reading someone's script too, if they, if they themselves were into it or not. And yeah. like you writing your action sample, because that's what you wanted to write. Mm-hmm. It worked out. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I think that's very important when people are sort of crafting their samples for the first time and they're sort of doing like you said chasing 
what they're seeing instead of what they just want to write. Yeah, it's chase your chase your voice. I think and like put your your point of view on the page, you know, and, yeah. and obviously try to be original. But I think you also have to learn how to be original within that box. You know, I think it was Orson Welles who said that uh, the absence of limitations is the enemy of art. And I always think yes. about that quote because you know I think when you are given an unlimited budget and no one to say no. I won't name names, but I think that there are a number of popular franchises that when they suddenly had no one to put them in a box and say yeah. no to ideas, then you got these sort of like confusing, bloated, aimless messes. So it, it's yes. it's one of those things where you, you, you know, channel your idea into something that you think you can convince others, someone else to be as excited about it as you are. And if you can yeah. do that, you're, you will have a career for as long as the day is long. Yeah. Um, what about when you started doing animation I'm with that sample or once you were on Troll Hunters? Was there a learning curve to the actual on the page, how it looks, craft of animation writing for you or anything that was surprising, like being more directing on the page more, yeah. bracketing sounds, any of that stuff that, that mm -hmm. took you by surprise? Well, you know, I think I tended to, I tend to like, long rambly jokes like they're my favorite <laughs> and yeah. I think, you know writing for uh, just television in general but a certain certainly animation I think you have to learn how to craft your jokes so that they're no longer than like an old school tweet you know like break yeah. it up and and I think that's that's an important thing of just like keep the pace up keep the energy up and I th and that that doesn't just apply to animation anymore by the way like you know unless you're writing a very yeah. glacially paced drama you know, you have to find ways to to keep the 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 momentum going forward. Whether it's just the character dynamics, uh, you know, oh, this consequence has resulted in this thing, but uh oh, therefore this happens. You know, it can't just be long conversations about how sad you are, and then another long conversation about how annoyed you are about that sad thing. Like, like you know, especially yeah. in animation, you know, just having two talking heads talking to each other is it's death. You know, and it's it's a little annoying because sometimes there are scenes that you could write that would actually work in a live action sure. show that because it'd be carried by the the emotion, right, of the actor, the subtle choices they make. Because human faces just evolutionary evolutionarily speaking, we're programmed to gain so much information about someone just purely about the tiny little muscular ticks in someone's face. And unfortunately, a lot of the, well, technically all of them are not present in animation. They're all conscious choices that tend to be uh, a little bit like uh, Greek theater, where it's almost like exaggerated mm -hmm. to the point where mm -hmm. you understand the emotion, you know, um, or or like uh, the Commedia delle Arte, you know, the Italian opera, <laughs> to take it back to opera, where yeah. you're like, this Please. is the old crone. This is the sad clown, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, you can still tell very compelling and interesting, you know, fables using those, the, those tools. And I think that's what we all do writing for animation. But, uh, you know, there, there are some things that you have to get used to not being able to do or adjust your expectations. Uh, uh, yeah. to make them work. You know, you can still earn those speeches. You can earn them. I promise. Uh, uh, but you have to, you, it takes a little more work. I think you have to build up to it. You have to give them all of that action and all of that, uh, you know, kinetic energy to, so mm -hmm. that, that they are craving a release 
to sit down and talk about how sad they are. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> what about um, your favorite step in the process? Do you have a favorite or least favorite? Uh, it's hard to pick a favorite because each, it, like for me, it's it's this interesting kind of uh, avalanche effect where like you you drop a little snowball or whatever, and then slowly it it causes a chain reaction, and each time it yeah. becomes this more bigger and grander, more interesting thing. You know, each stage I think makes it look even better, sound even better. I still think it's basically witchcraft. What you know <laughs> happens in those last few stages, where you know, especially in three D animation, <clears throat> you'll the last thing you'll see are just like T pose characters that yeah. are just kind of like zipping around like scarecrows and <laughs> not really talking, and you're just like, oh, did we screw this up? Uh, yeah. And then. Uh, but then suddenly the animation comes in and they kind of come to life and then the lighting and suddenly they're real and then the yeah. score comes in and suddenly all those little moments you thought could be a little better are you completely forget about them and it's amazing and yes. you know it's it's like watching a, a, a pile of bricks kind of self-assemble around you into a cathedral that you're living in as you're making it it's a really cool experience um you know I, as far as the most fun, I think just in the writer's room is really fun yeah. where you're just sort of like, you're just breaking the, the ideas like blue sky is always really great for like anything can happen. But even yeah. when you're actually like, okay, this is the premise that we've chosen. How do we make this a story? And then, you know, kind of navigating those infinite corridors uh, with your writers, uh, you know, and finding finding the best way through and sometimes those moments of realization and epiphany right where you're like i know in the last act i want the story to end with this character falling down a mine shaft but i'm like how am i going to earn that i know at yeah. the beginning he starts saying i'm never going near a mine shaft right. <laughs> you know and so so then uh, there's a great um there's a great quote from uh, Javi, uh, Javier Grillo Markswatch, uh, who's a very prominent writer on Twitter. Yeah. And, he's, and, and he and, and Jose Molina have a podcast uh, called um, Children of Tendu. But, they, but the rule they basically say is like, let it suck, which I, yeah. I really like that mentality of just like, it's, yeah. it's sort of a cousin to yes and, right? So it's just like, okay, we know the middle isn't worked out yet and whatever we have there isn't working, but we, but let's focus on the ending and make that great. And then mm -hmm. eventually you might come across something like, wow, the only way that would work is if he, if he didn't know there was a mine shaft there and you're like, oh, uh, there's our, yeah. there's our act two. And then yeah. you go back and then it becomes this sort of like a re-energization of like, well, what if we do that? What if we do this? And like that sort of ping pong of ideas is really fun for me. Casting yeah. is also really fun because that's when it's like you've done all the hard work and then now you get to kind of hear it come to life for the first time. Yes. And, and then you can start writing towards what the actor is bringing, if you're lucky enough, depending yeah. on how the production's set up. And 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 that is exciting for me because, you know, I, I got to collaborate with so many very cool people on the various shows I worked on. You know, I remember John Reese Davies. He when he when we hired him to to work on Wizards to play the affable Galahad, uh, he he spent ten minutes uh, before he would record a single line just reciting poetry like like Henry Wordsworth Longfellow. Uh, he just and and we were all just mesmerized. Like nobody stopped him. It was just great. It was amazing. Uh, That's and, awesome. and like Colin O'Donohue was wonderful. You know, because he would just find ways to like 
like nail exactly what we wrote and make it better. And then yeah. you have some some actors like Stephen Yoon uh, who will take what you write and they'll do a great take of that. But then you'll ask him to improv and he also mm-hmm. comes from an improv background and he'll just riff amazing stuff. Amazing. And we're like, well, I guess we got to work that in. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's that sense of community. I think those little moments where, where somebody, oh, and like concept art and stuff, you know, again, yeah. we talk about magic, witchcraft. Like <laughs> I, I cannot draw for the life of me, but whenever I, I work on something, I write a script or whatever and, and, it inspires someone uh, in another department, and then they come back. It's like, is this kind of what you were thinking? And they'll come up with something that's like a thousand times cooler. So far, yeah. <laughs> and so I'm far like, above anything that I could ever, yeah. yeah. I'll be like, let's go with that, and then yeah, I, yeah. and then I'll start writing towards that imagery. Yeah. You know? uh, and that's so fun to me. Of like, it, you know, that that kind of um, the unity and finding some way to it's it's a little bit like you're speaking different languages, but the, the, but the emotion is there and, and gradually they kind of flower into something new uh, that you never would have expected. And that, I think that's, that's life, man. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> uh, okay. So let's jump in to our topic for today, for this episode, which is serialized storytelling. Sure. Um, I think a lot, we actually touched on earlier about action adventure kind of going out of style for a while. So uh, I'd still say majority still of animated shows are sort of this episodic nature. Mm -hmm. Um, So let's start there just to set up for people who may not know. There's usually two types. It's either episodic or serialized. Could you just tell us what the differences are? And then do you have opinions on them? Do you prefer one or the other? Sure. Yeah, it's it's so episodic storytelling is probably what you're most familiar with, um, you know, in that it's just episode of the week, right? A, a self-contained story with a beginning, middle and end. And by the end of it, they've gone through this little mini story circle and have returned to their uh, their status quo, having maybe learned a tiny bit about themselves. But otherwise, they're ready to walk right back into that cheers bar and have another adventure with Sam and Diane. Yeah. Um, but then, but serialized storytelling is something that's sort of the soup du jour right now in, in, uh, the entertainment industry, uh, in animation, I would say it's, it's like, we're getting more serialized shows for a while. It was primarily episodic, but in the age of streaming, I think a lot of people are interested in exploring that. So I, I don't quote me on this, but I think it's maybe like 60% episodic, 40% serialized based on the project seen out there. And also knowing what's coming, it feels like we're definitely headed that way. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and so serialized is, is, is long story arcs. Uh, you know, some are more heavily serialized than others where you'll have episodes literally end on a cliffhanger. Uh, and, you know, you'll have ep- episode arcs that where the story uh, might span the entire season. And it's just one continuous goal that they're trying to, that they keep encountering complications on or getting new revelations about. Uh, but it's, it's one of those things where you, I don't think you could easily jump into just the, the middle of a serialized story and fully know yeah. what's going on. <laughs> you kind of have to right. start at the beginning. Um, and there's what's interesting in animation is sometimes there's there's sort of hybrids of it too like yes. you know where you have you'll have those episodic um episodes for lack of a better term <laughs> uh and then you'll have 
arcs that are, that are basically three, four, five parters sometimes. Uh, I think Steven Universe is a great example of that, where you'll have episodes that are completely self-contained and you can just air anytime. And you're just like, that was a fun little adventure with Steven and, and the, the Crystal Gems. Uh, yeah. But then you'll also have uh, the world is ending. The, there is a giant <laughs> monster in the center of the earth. Uh, and now we have to go off planet and find the, you know, these alien warlords and convince them to help us. Uh, and, and, you know, those are all in, you know, ending on cliffhangers, picking up where the last ones go off. Uh, and, you know, it's almost like a little D&D campaign, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I like that model a lot. You know, I, okay. I think that uh, I think that there's pros and cons uh, of both. Uh, and I think having the latitude to be able to do either because it is very valuable because, you know, even if and that's kind of what we tried to do on, on Troll Hunters, it, it leaned certainly right. more in the direction of, of uh, serialization. But, um, you know, we tried to make it so that each episode at least was sort of like a self-contained thing mm-hmm. you know like this is the episode where toby gets his warhammer this is the episode where um a stockling uh sort of like a, a creature is is literally trying to abduct jim on his 16th birthday you know right. those are stories that you can kind of tell it, it, and they have their own little beginning mill and end but we would have a runner throughout where it's like those events were part of this greater kind of arc of oh, the, these evil trolls and supernatural creatures are trying to collect the bridge pieces in order to bring back their, their uh, sort of demonic warlord that lives in another right. dimension, uh, you know? And so like that, that's sort of, uh, and, and eventually he gets out and that, that's like the, the midpoint of the, the show. So mm-hmm. it's like, um, it's, it evolves the stories in serialized storytelling in a way that, that your characters can change. They can grow. You know, we have a character that like loses a limb and it's not like the next episode. He's like, I, I grew it back, right. you know, <laughs> like yeah. uh, characters can die and it means something, you know, mm-hmm. although in a magical universe, who knows what that really means, oh, but sure. like cough, cough, Marvel, cough, cough. Um, <laughs> You know, it, it's. It, I think that that having that latitude uh, to be able to tell the stories as you want to be want want to tell them, you know, yeah. and, and unfold a greater saga while exploring these little slice of life moments is nice. Um, you know, in episodic, you can do a little bit of that uh, mm-hmm. here or there. You know, and it, I, usually it's just with character revelations, right? Sure. You know, like and and that might be just okay, we've done 20 episodes episodic. Let's change up the dynamic a little bit and see what more episodes we can get. You know, like whether it's, okay, these two characters are a couple now this season. Right, and so right. then you just do a bunch of episodes like that. But, you know, the, even those kind of accumulate a little bit, I think. Yeah. I, I, you know, I obsessively watched the X-Files growing up and I, I, I feel like I was maybe tricked into thinking that was a serialized show. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. oh, no, it's all going to add up, man. They have a master plan. Right. <laughs> eventually, I was just like, oh, they're just kind of making it up as they go. <laughs> but, but, you know, that's, I think that's kind of the fun. And maybe that those like proto attempts at serialization are, are why we're at 
we are where we are now. It's something that, right. that other countries have done for a long time. You know, Britain, uh, especially, uh, you know, BBC and, and Sky and whatnot, like they, they, they've been in the limited series game for a long time where you would just, yeah. you would order one, they, would, they, would, they didn't even call them seasons. They would call them series because the assumption was, oh, if you just watch this, these first 10 episodes, that's the whole game. You know, right. and maybe if it's popular enough, we'll order a series too. Uh, yeah. You know, um, so I think that there's room for all, all you know, forms. And I'm always mm -hmm. of, of the uh, opinion that it's better to just tell whatever is the best version for the story you want to tell, you know, and, and an yeah. easy way to kind of, I, I guess, a litmus test for that is what's your character's central want or goal? And, you know, obviously you'll want something for your character that is perhaps intangible, like, you know, they are, they're, they're still trying to find out who they are. You know, that's, that's intangible. And I think that that right. is evergreen. And yeah. that's, that's a central sort of uh, tenant of most characters, I think. But if it's but if they also have a physical goal of like I want to get into culinary school, which happens at the end of the summer, then that that means that you are probably building towards some sort of yeah. series arc that, that is going to define their progress along the way. Um, you know, when you're breaking an, an episodic story, you tend to think in terms of premises pretty much exclusively. You think, mm -hmm. oh, what, what's a fun little story we can tell with this pairing of characters or that pairing of characters? Right. And what if they went on an ocean adventure or what have you? Uh, whereas with, with serialized storytelling, uh, you tend to think, you break that out in advance of like, okay, this season, what is the arc? What are our characters' yeah. arcs for this season? And how does that time their total growth of the series arc over the next three, four, five seasons, maybe. Um, yeah. We hope as the we writers. Hope. Yeah. 10, or 12. suddenly wrapped up in, in something else, in like a, yeah. a, a three-part uh, mini-series. Um, yeah. uh, but yeah, so they, I think that the, uh, that process in serialized storytelling is pretty interesting because what we'll do is we'll have a lot of blue sky sort of brainstorming where- yeah where you'll just sort of like, okay, we have the pilot and we have the sort of like the series premise that was bought by the network, right? Uh, but at least the shows I've worked on, it's been very fungible at that point to like, okay, okay let, let's hear your best ideas of like, what inspires you? Like we haven't, like we know kind of this character's basic arc of like, you know, becoming a hero or whatever. But beyond that, like what are, what are his wants and needs what are, what are his interests, his hobbies? What are the things he's scared of? What are the things he doesn't like to do? Um, you know, and this and is then, you, this is you and the writers and the writers and the showrunner, everyone in the room all together. Yes. Sort of blue sky in the whole season. Absolutely. Just to set the scene. Okay. Yes. And so, and then that's the opportunity for everybody just to kind of throw out ideas of who they think this character is based on, you know, what we saw of them in the pilot and, and maybe in, the, yeah. in the, the, the pitch Bible, if there is one, but usually it, it there's a lot of room. To, like if somebody says like, Hey, I grew up, I grew up uh, and I was just like this character. And these yeah. are the things that meant, meant a lot to me. 
then then very easily that might influence the whole arc for that character and say oh that that's way better than what we were thinking and uh, let's let's explore that a little bit um and then so we'll talk a little bit about character arcs like who who mm-hmm. they are and who we think it would be interesting for them to become right but then we'll also have a period, sometimes simultaneously, if we're getting burnt out on thinking about one or the other, sure. and we'll just sort of like come out with like, okay, what, how can we explore what's called the promise of the premise, which is just like, okay, this is a spacefaring show. What are some fun spacey things that we can mm-hmm. put our, our twist on, you know, because like, especially when you're dealing in genre, there's going to be a lot of stuff that people expect to see, but there's right. also going to be a lot of stuff that, um, people have seen already <laughs> so right. which feels like a paradox right yeah so you have to it's but but the answer i think is is that uh, you know culture is this massive swaying tower you know as ecclesiastes said there's nothing new under the sun uh but what it really amounts to is it's a conversation it's a conversation mm-hmm. with the stories that have come before uh and so it's okay to to have your cowboy uh, have a gun you know but what is it about his relationship with that gun that maybe says something about the genre and mm-hmm. transforms it in a way that that maybe you know previous versions hadn't really touched on or or questioning certain assumptions about the genre uh and saying what if we took that out or what if right. that actually is a bad thing <laughs> yeah. um and you know where does that take us in the story and very quickly You'll find you you'll you'll hit that sweet spot where it's familiar enough where they will they're on board and they understand it you know in a format that you know whether it's eleven minute or or a half half hour um, to they'll un- understand enough that they'll kind of buy into the premise of of whatever you're pitching um, right and then but then we'll be hopefully be surprised by the end of it it's like I was not expecting them to go that direction. Um, uh, and I think that's where originality really comes to shine. It's not just about having that perfect log line. <laughs> it never is. It's always execution. Um, yeah. um, so yeah, well, and then once we've kind of established like, okay, this is what we think season one looks like. And mm-hmm. then we'll go through all these premises like, okay, this feels like it maybe has a place in season one. Uh, uh, this idea maybe evolves the character too much, but let's keep it on the maybe season two pile. (laughs) And then then once you kind of figure that out, then it becomes almost like a game of dominoes where we just kind of explore and just see like, okay, we definitely know this is our our beginning. And we'll usually have like a midpoint of some kind Mm -hmm. where like kind of whatever central arc for the first season kind of turns. And then Mm -hmm. this is where we know it's going to end. And we'll, once we've kind of figured out those three parts of the triangle, then you can start to say like, oh, what if we, that idea about them getting swallowed by a whale, uh, you know, that we, that could be in episode three and that could be how we explore, you know, uh, Jimmy's fear of the dark, you know, or, or, and then you start to kind of explore like, oh, that's like a good first step in their journey of like right. learning to come into their own and, and face their fears, you know, and, and so in that way, you can kind of have a little bit of that fun uh, promise of the premise and and fun and games uh, to put it in save the cat terms yeah. um, of what what uh, people are expecting, and then hopefully by the end of it, um, you'll you'll come out of it having got a very good, rich and varied kind of experience in this world that you've created. Uh, you know, sometimes there could be a, a, a tendency uh, when people think in serialization to just think of like one big story for the whole season. Right. Um, and then they're like, 
and then they just kind of make it gets broken up into like fetch quests or or just like yeah. a, a, a one long chase or something and that's yeah it's hard to make that dynamic uh because at a certain point your audience is going to be like okay we saw them getting chased in the previous episode right. what's different about this one you know, and that dial, I think you can move back and forth as needed, uh, depending of how how out there, uh, you know, and borrow from those sort of episodic high concept premise of the week you want to get. Um, yeah. But I think just the key is just to whatever those pieces are, <clears throat> whereas episodic, you can ha- you can introduce a time lord or whatever who can control time, and then you never right. see them again, and nobody questions it. But yeah. in serialized, everything you you introduce becomes sort of a Chekhov's gun of sorts. Uh, and what I mean by that, if you're not familiar, is like in uh, Anton Chekhov, the playwright, uh, I think it was in The Seagull, he famously introduced and made a big deal about a character just picking up a gun off the wall, waved right. it around, and then put it back on the wall in Act 1. And then we don't hear anything about it until Act 3, when a character gets shot. <laughs> so and what basically what that means is, you know, you got to use every part of the Buffalo, so to speak, like you need to be willing to uh, if you're going to put these high, big ideas in there and a serialized show, you can't make them so that they're deus ex machinas uh, right. <laughs> that will just, oh, well, he, we already saw we, he can teleport, you know, uh, you have to keep those in mind when you when you have you know future episodes that involve that. You know, yeah. and I think Star Trek is a great example. In uh, in previous series, they when it that whenever you could like, well, no, they just beam them out. And it was like, well, there's ionic interference. You didn't think about that, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so that that you know, and that's that that can actually be fun too, because sometimes you'll be stuck on the finale. Like, how can we make this interesting? And then right. you're like, oh, we accidentally set that up with this thing that we explored in the previous episode. What if we, what if they use that in a surprising novel way? And Mm -hmm. that's something that a number of like the Stephen Moffat, like uh, Doctor Who seasons always did that I was enamored by. And I've tried to sort of copy that where, and I think it it really does, uh, it enriches serialized storytelling. It it rewards the viewer for paying attention uh, to every episode and and reminds me of me as a kid watching every episode of (laughs) X-Files trying to determine you know, what their secret plan was with the cancer man. (laughs) Right. How much of that then are you mapping out from the jump versus then breaking individual episodes as you go along? Like how detailed have you been able to get on your series? Yeah. You know, it's, it's a, it's, I think a balancing act like anything else, because here's the thing. If you, if you, you can micromanage and pre-plan through four seasons. And I've, yeah. I've heard of some people even doing that when they're pitching a show, you know, yeah. and it even being asked for, which is a little wild to me. <laughs> um, but in my opinion, it's, if you are so rigid and you, you've figured out uh, all of these sort of arcs and twists and turns for the next four seasons, there's no room for exploration or discovery. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, because it's going to happen inevitably, unless you're absolutely draconian <laughs> and you just want people to literally just be writer chimpanzees just typing out what you right. say. Um yeah. that other people will infuse their own ideas and their own surprising takes on the characters. And and you need to be flexible enough to allow for those 
that lightning in a bottle to to strike and and capture it and and it'll only make your show better <laughs> like, yeah. you know it, because by the time a show gets out of development into into production you know you've been so beat up and re, like back <laughs> through the mud and you're just trying to get everybody to say yes uh yeah. that um you know you might be you might not be like at 100 <laughs> percent the same enthusiasm as when you started sure. and bringing in some fresh blood of, of people that have fresh ideas that can energize that I think is really a, a, an essential part of the process. Mm -hmm. So uh, to, to answer your question, you know, like, I think we will always try to have some sort of like, this is how we see the series ending. Right. Mm -hmm. And that can change if at, let's say it's four, four seasons and we're at season two and we're like, you know what? I feel like that thing that we thought should happen in season four like the arcs have organically got to where that should happen in season three, you know? Yeah. And I feel like there's something more that we can explore that goes even beyond that, you know? And so it, it, it becomes this sort of, you have to let the story tell you what it needs to be. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's always good to have ideas of at least the first two seasons of like a pro like if, if, gun to your head you had to suddenly just start writing this show you would say here's where i think it's gonna end season one here's where i think it's gonna go and explore season two right um but then you have to be amenable to the idea that as you're getting these cool uh visual developments back and explorations and questions are being asked in the writer's room uh that that are like okay, we all know that this character, you know, had a, had a hard life, but what if we find out that that's all a lie or that's a lie he told himself, uh, you know, and, and if it makes the story better, then you have to just lean into that. It's a, you know, Guillermo yeah. del Toro always called it a special alchemy. It's something where you can't, you can't plan that sort of stuff. Uh, yeah. but, but when it happens, it's a wonder to behold. So I, I think it's something that, that you need to, uh, who, who was it that I think it was uh, a, a famous jazz player uh, who had said, you know, you have to leave room for God to walk into the room. Uh, and what I think what he meant by that is like, you know, allow the, the, the present moment to inform your decisions as much as the things yeah. that you decided on arbitrarily three months ago. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and that might've sounded great then, but if you stick to it, it's a, shame what could be lost if you didn't yeah and sometimes there's just stuff you didn't think of <laughs> you know yeah. you like it until you get those outside perspectives from you know talented writers like yourself who'd say like oh what if he what if he just the, takes the gun off the wall and throws it in a well <laughs> like like oh you know oh yeah maybe we should explore that uh and and that's where you go into interesting surprising territory you know uh yeah. so it's it's always good to have a vision both for your writer's room and for, you know, your production uh, say, this is where we think it's going. Uh, but you also need to have the, the presence of mind to recognize when something better is, has manifested organically in front of you and just make sure everybody knows like, okay, we have an idea. What do you guys think? And right. hopefully if everybody agrees with you, then you've just made your show better. So, right. Great. Yeah. On a more practical um, level with that as the head writer, how are you balancing macro and micro 
when you're actually doing your passes, when you're talking to writers, when you're launching, when you're brainstorming, how do you balance those things? Well, you know, it, it, it that's the, the, the trick, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so I think it can be very easy to, to look at a script and say, well, that's not how I would have written it. And then you just rewrite it, you know, <laughs> to make it how you would write it. Um, but, you know, I think Mark Guggenheim, who's a very talented writer as well, he created like the Arrowverse and such and, and was one of our executive producers on, on Tales of Arcadia. He, he yeah. said he had some really great advice for me when I kind of stepped up to be head writer and, and co-showrunner, which is just like, you know, uh, sometimes you'll get a scene back from from your staff and you'll be like, that's not how I would have written it. However, you have to ask yourself the question, does it work? And if it works, then then you have to, at that point, your revision becomes, how can I make this version the best version? And, mm-hmm. and so I think that's where kind of the fun improv game kind of comes in. It's like, okay, if we want to do it that way, how can I, how can I add on to rather than, uh, you know, erase and replace? And, you know, sometimes there are occasions where they just kind of maybe the when we were breaking it, it uh, they missed the mark or or or, you know, they just didn't quite understand. And so then you have to either give them notes and give them a second pass with your feedback uh, or you just kind of like you do a pass and then show it to them. And then, you know, either they do their pass or especially in the table read, once everybody's kind of mm-hmm. had their uh, crack at the egg. Uh, everybody kind of sits down and I I'm always very amenable to hear hearing notes when we all sit down and do a table read on Friday or whatever of of the script at the end of end of all these rewrites and say okay you know read it in the night before uh we're going to do a table read together here at sounds out loud if you have any punch-up jokes if you have any questions if you have any scenes that you know in all of our collective delirium we thought works and you think it just really doesn't uh, and have pitches of how we could address that without upsetting the apple, apple cart and completely destroying <laughs> the rest of the script. Right. Uh, then I'm all ears. And, you know, I think that, that again, it's that creating that, that window, that target that people can, can play within that you build the, mm-hmm. the, the borders of the sandbox. Uh, but in terms of the macro, I think that is uh, a, a slightly harder challenge uh which is like you know as the head writer or the showrunner or or an executive producer you you will be in a a bunch of meetings with you know other high powerful executives or producers or whatnot that that the staff writers are not in and you know sometimes it's they'll be giving the same note over and over again it's like i think this character needs to be tougher you know Mm -hmm. and uh even if the writer's room loves the character just being like a sweetheart uh, if they're powerful enough, they want to see the toughness in there. So you have to find ways to yeah. put that put that in there in a way that satisfies the whole team. Uh, and often, you know, it's what you call a problem tunity, where it's like even if you disagree with a note, you have if you if you ideate on it a little bit, then eventually you can say actually there is a way you can make that work, and it would still be cool, and it would right. be, and it might even be like more innovative than if you had just gone with your version. So yeah, like, you know, ideally, and I know that's a very optimistic way to look at notes, <laughs> but I'm here for it, <laughs> but I, I try to bring that attitude to it. Um, yeah. and sometimes, sometimes I will admit it is about making the least worst version, <laughs> you know, sure. if, if you get a note that you just abjectly disagree with, but, uh, right. 
it just it's going in then your job then becomes how can we make you know use every modicum of our talent and craft to make this so that it is not noticeable mm-hmm. <laughs> and and then you know sh- sure enough by the time it gets gets in there and all the actors have done their passes and the editing and and the soundtrack and the score that that part you're like this is going to ruin my career uh by the time it's on tv it, you don't notice it and it's just and yeah. you you the stuff you remember is all the fun stuff you hopefully put into it already that's in the other right part. So, um so that yeah i mean that i think that kind of like funneling you know, because as as a head writer on a show, you're really at this, this nexus of two funnels. I feel like the, yeah. the funnel of the of the studio and the network, and who you know maybe non writing EPs or what have you, um, and then on the other funnel is is your your writing staff, um, and and uh, they are they have their ideas and they they're very passionate about you know the what they want to see on the screen. So you know. And I think this is something that I'm still learning too. And I think it's something that people never learn is like, how, how do you strike yeah. that balancing act to, to make your, your creative people that you've hired to be creative for you feel like they're being creative, but also uh, how do you satisfy the powerful network and the people that are paying the bills and, and ordered a specific type of show <laughs> um, yeah. and make sure they still get that show while still having fun and room right. to play. Um, and then sort of side to that is making sure you communicate with the rest of the production team and, and your art department, right. and your storyboard artists, my gosh, talk to your storyboard artists. Please. Like sometimes, sometimes there, there is this impulse and I don't know why it happens, but to silo each department. And I, I find it, it tends to cause more problems than it helps. Yes. Uh, it's much better to have an open door if you can and all, yes. and check in you know, with, with your storyboard artists and your directors and stuff as much as possible, just to kind of give them like, here's what our, our vision for this show is, if there's anything, or this episode is, or whatever. And if there's anything you don't understand, please like, let, let's talk it out. And yeah. I'll, try, I'll try to my very best to, to sell you on this idea. And yes. I, I would say like 85 to 90% of the time, they'll, they, by the time we've had that conversation, like, oh man, I get it. That's awesome. And, right. then, they, and then it's, and then they make it even better. So yes. it's like, I, I, you may as well just, you know, I don't know, but, but, but talk to your team. <laughs> it seems yes. like, it seems like an obvious I, thing, but. But it's amazing how, like you said, how often it doesn't happen. And I don't know why you wouldn't want to, because it's also fun. It's like, it they can fun. do things I can't do. They can draw this <laughs> yeah. and make it come to life. And sometimes they'll have creative solutions, you know, and yeah. especially in 3D, if there's a certain story beat you have to make happen, but the version that some people are predicting is like way too expensive. And then right. you know, the VFX guy or girl might say like, Hey, you know, actually there's a specific thing. If we just cover this up and use a walking routine, then it costs nothing. And then we're like, yeah, yeah let's do that. Yeah. <laughs> or yeah. in the, or in the breakdown draft, they'll be like, we can't, we don't have a trash can. It'll, it'll cost us $10,000. We can't mail the trash can. And then I'm like, well, what do we have? It's like, we have a laundry basket. We can reskin as a trash can and it's free. And I'm like, great. <laughs> that. that does not affect the story at all. They just need to hide in a thing, <laughs> you know? And so it, it, I think being able to have that, that conversation is, is important. Uh, yes. Yeah. And sometimes jokes come out of that, which is my yes. favorite. If they're like, we can cheat it, but it has to be this silly thing instead. It's like, yeah, yeah do, the do the old silly comedy band in. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> those come useful. Uh, those are very useful uh, in story points too. Sometimes, sometimes yeah. you're like, "Oh man, we this is just uh, why are they doing this?" And I'm like, "Hang a lantern on it," <laughs> and it works. You know, it, it changes the vibe a little bit. You know, but that's the vibe I like to write in anyway. So. Yeah. Just have a yeah. character say like, well, this is the thing they do in a movie, but we clearly can't do that. <laughs> what about um, with uh, world building? So when you're setting up the rules of your land, your characters, how much of that are you doing up front? How much is dictated once you get story figured out? How much do you s- stick to it? Yeah, I mean, like uh, Guillermo always had this really, this, this is kind of a two-parter. One is sort of yeah. the idea of plot versus story. Uh, and then the other is uh, how do you have fun w- with these rules of world building uh, without completely making your a story nonsensical? <laughs> so one is plot versus story, right? So uh, Guillermo del Toro always had this uh, phrase that he loved to repeat that I thought about a lot called plot is the rhythm and story is the melody. And so what did he mean by that? So like when you're writing a story, it's important to not get caught up in the details that you lose sight of what makes it meaningful to your characters and by extension to your audience, right? Mm-hmm. You know, plot, if your plot is exclusively driving your, your, uh, your story and, and it's just your character is just reacting to these things and just trying to survive, it's going to be very hard for you to be able to glom onto that uh, as an audience member. You know, it's hard to, un- because so much of the work that we do is about, uh, understanding and sympathizing with what your character's choices are. And if yeah. you're not giving them choices, then you're, you're in a real sticky wicket. Um, you know, so it re- good writing really is about emotional consequences for interesting characters driven by those personal motivations. So when you're building your world, you know, obviously I think having the plot elements make sense and be an important part of it just to go... Sure because that's ultimately the hook that, that sold your show in addition to the, I'm sure, lovable and dynamic characters. Of course. Um, don't let that, that hook uh, overshadow your character's exploration of it because that's really, I think, the most important thing. Keep, them, keep those characters um, active and, mm-hmm. and have them, the choices they make in the world, yes, they, the choices might be, do I use that laser blaster or do I... <laughs> Or, or do I uh, swear off all science or something? You know, like it could be something that's related to the plot, but beneath that is, do I want to be like my father, you know, who was a soldier? You know, play with that stuff more than mm-hmm. than just the mythology that you're inventing. Um, you know, it, the plot is the action of what's physically happening and why, but it's not as important as, as the story, which is the what's the meaning is of this stuff. You know, another way to think about it, there's a Dashiell Hammett, who was the author of The Maltese Falcon, had this really interesting quote that was, uh, plot is the stake that writers give to the guard dog while the burglar does his business, <laughs> which is a very weird metaphor. Yeah. But I kind of love it. But I like it. Uh-huh. Because it's like, hey, audience, here's that stake of plot. And then you go in there and then you make them feel things. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> gotcha. You care about these characters and I made you cry. Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, but you know, that's, that's one part of the equation, I think when it comes to good world building, but mm-hmm. a- another aspect is like 
the I, and this is a term I also stole from Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> of, uh, you know, it's a dungeon master term called the rule of cool, right? And that's uh, it's simply put, it's that your audience will forgive any bending of logic or reality in your story if the moment is sufficiently awesome or rad enough. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm a strong believer in this, but within limits, right? I find it's mm-hmm. a useful guideline when you're trying to find wild or exciting moments that the audience will be thinking of, uh, those eye-popping, I can't believe they did that moments, you know, whether it's uh, Neo stopping the bullets midair in, in the Matrix or Tyler Durden blowing up Wall Street at the end of Fight Club or, yeah. you know, the Klingon bird of prey decloaking in front of uh, the, the whaling ship in, in the fourth Star Trek movie. Like, those are the stuff like, oh, my God, and you yeah. go home thinking about that. But my the, my the way I temper that is like you can't go just crazy, right? Uh, because sure. you can only do it when it services the story. There's a delicate balance to be struck with world building. You know, every world has its own rules, even if mm-hmm. even if that world is is patently crazy or you know it's a, a genre east thing. The worlds the, the rules that it follows uh, are always at least self-contained to itself. Like it, it doesn't break them. Uh, it, it creates an internal logic that your tale will adhere to. Um, and so when you do break them, you have to make it matter and earn it. Right. And, you know, for instance, in Ghostbusters, we're told explicitly, uh, don't shut down the power grid and don't ever cross the streams. Like those are just the two rules that they, <laughs> that they say upfront, those will right. cause the end of the world. But they did it. They did it quite brilliantly, which is they effectively used it as a Chekhov's gun. Right? Mm-hmm. We're told the world will end, and in this world where ghosts exist and are a problem, and you can basically <laughs> call like a dog catcher to come catch your ghosts. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you know that's all fine, <laughs> but you can't cross the streams and you can't turn off the power grid because those are that those are two things that will screw everything up. But eventually, those rules get broken. You know, mm-hmm. and it has consequences. And I think mm-hmm. that's the important thing is like, uh, you know, the EPA shuts down the power grid, a ghost apocalypse occurs, the rule is broken and New York was punished for it. Uh, and then in the final battle against Gozer the Gozerian, when our heroes are forced uh, to face the realities uh, that they uh, that they have to break yet another rule to save the world and may die doing so, uh, it all feels more suspenseful. They cross the streams, uh, they defeat Gozer, and, you know, that willingness to kind of venture out of their comfort zone works because it feels like that hero's journey of like, we're right. willing to sac- even we know we've already saw it, haven't we turned off the power grid? If we do this, we're probably going to die, but at least we might save everybody else. But, uh, you know, but just out of curiosity, venturing into that unknown and unknown possibility happens and they're covered by the marshmallow man's goo. It saves their lives. Um <laughs> And, you know, they, they've done something truly heroic, you know, knowing the, con- even knowing the consequences. Um, so in short, I always make sure that, that you think through the world you're creating and make the rules that you lay out have consequences or ramifications. That way, when you do break them, hopefully in unquestionably cool ways, they become memorable moments and don't feel like mistakes or logical oversights. Right. I feel I feel like that's that's the best way I can describe it because you don't ever want to be 
you know, like sort of shackled to these rules that you've created right. to, if it's getting in the way of your, your story. But if you're going to do it, just find a way to uh, make it feel like it's, it's a choice that your characters are making, knowing the consequences. And maybe, right. just maybe, it'll turn out the whole world was wrong. And, right. and you've discovered some new thing about the world. And that's, and that's Joseph Campbell right there. That's venturing into the unknown and returning, making, getting what you want, having changed. Yes. <laughs> so, right. yeah. That's great. I um, especially appreciate going about it from the character's perspective in that it, it's not this meta rule where we're going to get our audience thinking logically about the writers who then decided to change their rules, having it come from the character where they're acknowledging it. Yeah. It, I think that, something makes it. Yeah. I think if you can make it tie into their arc, that's the most right. important thing. And that's hard. I'm not even saying I do it perfectly all the time, <laughs> but I, I try my darndest. <laughs> yeah. And in general, I think it, it's worked out quite well. Um, and, you know, I think that that way you can at least have your fun and games and your, and explore whatever cool sci-fi world, you know, but I'm just saying, like, if you, if you create a world where everything is controlled by some sort of, I don't know, AI world brain, you got to go see that world brain. Like, <laughs> like, like, you know, don't, don't tease us with that. Right. If you're going to mention it, we're going to want to see it. Yeah. Uh, is that a case of something that have you found you're often reverse engineering? Like you're, you end up needing to sort of break a rule that you said earlier and you're like, oh shoot. And so then it's just sometimes, you know, sometimes it's, if we, it, you know, sometimes it is like, well, we're stuck in a rock between a hard place, but then you're yeah. like, and then you're like, oh, how interesting. What happens if we do break that rule then? Like right. What happens, you know? Uh, and we had a moment on Troll Hunters that was like that, where, where part of the sort of meta joke of Troll Hunters was you have this teenage boy who kind of stumbles into this world of fantasy that has all yeah. of these like cockamamie magical rules, which by definition defy logic and reason, you know? Yeah. Um, and a lot of them manifested in this magic amulet that he had. That, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and we intentionally gave it all these like contradictory rules that were supposed to be symbolic of a teenager suddenly being thrust into the adult world where everybody just follows all these rules that you don't know anything about and none of them make any sense. Uh, yes. So that was kind of what we were doing with the the amulet. But we had this this interesting conundrum where like in, in an earlier episode, we said, oh, the amulet can be stolen, right? Mm -hmm. But then we also had another rule that the amulet... Um, the amulet will come and, and activate and protect you in times of danger. Right. Right. So then you're like, well, that's, that's literally an unstoppable force means an immovable object. Like if, if, yeah. if someone has stolen the amulet and Jim's in danger without it, what happens? And so we put those two rules against each other in the, in the penultimate episode of season one. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and he had what he thought was his amulet, but actually someone had swapped it out with a fake and suddenly he was, he was just a child fighting monsters and, and in huge suspense. Uh, but then, then the climax, you see that like what happens when this enchanted object, which perhaps isn't alive, but uh, whatever magic enchantments are on it has to make this decision. Right. What happens? Which way does it go? Does it, yes, the amulet can still be stolen or I have to protect Jim. And, and you see it vibrating with this choice. You're, you're really rooting for this amulet to do the right yeah. thing. And then suddenly it goes and shoots off. And it's the coolest thing in the 
whole show uh, <laughs> where you see it like rocket like Superman and and rocket through town and and uh, breaking the sound barrier and then it arrives at Jim and in an explosion of light and energy and triumph uh, he right. suddenly armors up for the first time in front of his would-be girlfriend and she's astonished that that he wasn't just a crazy person after all that he really did have a magic suit of armor and it was a really cool moment that can't just came out of well we you know the conversation in the room was well we can't do yeah. that we can't do that and then somebody was just like what if we did and then you're like love that <laughs> you know and they're like well what does that mean for the characters you know what does that mean for the uh the the world and i think the answer is is like every rule can be broken it's just the question is what does it mean yeah. <laughs> if it is you yeah. can't you know if you're going to set up a rule give it consequences i think that's right. the important thing right i feel like a lot of good writers room conversations come from but what if we did <laughs> <laughs> yes. And those are my favorite ones too, because that's where you start venturing into unknown territory because sometimes yeah. even, even as writers, you're operating on a lot of assumptions that, right. well, the, the rules of writing say this has to happen or, you know, this is not where he's in his journey yet. Uh, it's like, but what if it was his first opportunity to explore that part of himself? We like the, the, the future isn't written yet to, to quote Doc Brown and back to the future part three. <laughs> I love those movies. They're so good. I just saw a tweet yesterday. Who knows? Twitter. I hope it's real. That it was rejected over 40 times by studios. Yeah, because they were freaked out by the the quasi-romance between him and his mom. Well, that's me. And they refused to take it out. (laughs) And if you watch the movie, it's what makes it so compelling. It's like a nightmare scenario. And you're like, oh my God. It's you, you taking yeah. your character and putting you know, and putting him in the worst case scenario and seeing right. how he reacts, you know, uh, which is a, a, another great, um, it's a great writing lesson, honestly, like don't shot, don't pull your punches, you know, don't save the yes. good writing for season two. If you can find a way to do that, put that compelling moment in your script, put it in there. Uh, yeah. because you'll you, always you'll, find another one. A hundred percent. You'll always come yeah. up with something cool later. Like, don't waste the opportunity to, 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 to bring your audience along for the ride. Yeah. I think people do that sometimes with pilots too. They'll be like, mm-hmm. you know, oh, I want to save that. And it's like, just yeah. put it in. Something better will come. Don't worry. It's true. That's a common mistake I found with a lot of pilots, especially with writing samples is like, they'll, yeah. they'll do a lot of character work, which is fine and important. But then the, the pilot will end with a teaser of like, and this is what the show is about. I'm like, wait. So show me episode two then. <laughs> that. Yeah, like don't don't wait to show me what your your show's about until the, when it's yeah. already over. <laughs> like, yeah. Find it's hard, but you can do it. Find a way to move yeah. that to your inciting incident, at least. Yes, especially when you're thinking of it as a sample, because that's so theoretical. Any other episode, so yeah. just use it now. It's you know? true, but even I feel like in storytelling now, like you, you got to find give the 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 audience at least a taste of what your show is going to be like in the yes. pilot, or that you will. There's a lot of TV out there, my friend. <laughs> like yes. you'll lose their interest if if you're like, oh, just wa- keep watching until episode seven. That's right. when you, it'll be the show you want. Like make it episode one, make episode <laughs> one good. Now I know it's always hard too when you get a recommendation from someone and they're like, season two, it, it's really good, and I'm know. like, I can't. 
can't I'm watch like, season one. I, it's like I barely read a chapter of a book a night. Like, I can't, don't ask me to watch 30 hours of something just before it is enjoyable. Yeah. <laughs> what about, have you experienced this and maybe you haven't? Were all of your serialized shows fully staffed only in room writers or have you worked with freelancers on a serialized show? Um, it's, I think on a serialized show, it's a little harder to do freelance. Uh, yeah. because you know you're you have to ask them to come in uh, and absorb however many episodes have happened and also they weren't there for all those conversations where something was tried and in, in the right. trial and error and then an executive or the head writer or whoever you know has said that doesn't work or they you tried it already and it doesn't work you know uh, I, there are some that have light serialization that I think you can do freelance, but the, those tend to be the ones that can function a little bit more as self-contained episodes or bottle episodes or what have you. Um, you know, on Unikitty, we we used all uh, freelancers for the mm-hmm. most part. Uh, but I think just because, uh, you know, I come from the <laughs> serialized storytelling background, I still wanted to have some elements of continuity in it. So, right. so, you know, that was interesting. And we wound up going back to a number of the same freelancers over and over again, because okay. then it, we were kind of creating not a perfect writer's room, but in the end, like they had done enough of the episodes and they'd seen enough animatics and gotten the right. notes and the feedback that, that they were approximating getting closer to those first drafts being really strong, you know, because they knew what was going on. So, you know, I, yeah, I, I wish that it was easier to give out freelance scripts on heavily serialized shows, but it, I find it is difficult <laughs> because, you know, yes. they have it, it's. I wouldn't ask that of anybody to just suddenly jump in and just have a a, a, a intimate understanding of the characters and story arcs yeah. and stuff. And oh, by the way, it's due in a week and a half. <laughs> it's it's a lot. Um, yeah, it, it it is. Having done it as a freelancer, it's like you said, nearly impossible. And you just hope your story editor is going to be happy with, hopefully yeah. you get it halfway there. Uh, yeah, I, I, I am, a, a, if you can't tell, I am a strong advocate for writers' rooms, uh, especially yes. types of shows. Because uh, I think that in the end, you know, you will, uh, creating that that hive mind, you know, where everybody yeah. is supporting everybody, you'll get some very interesting work that, you know, not to say freelance scripts can also be really interesting and great. Sure. But I, I also, I, I want to hear what those freelance writers would have to say when talking to another writer, you know, I, I want to, I want everybody to, to sort of steal sharpening steel. And, and I think yes. that hopefully, you know, writers room still get to be things in the future. Oh gosh. I sure hope so. <laughs> That's a whole yeah. other conversation. I know. Um, what about this sort of the last topic in the serialized world is um, pitching stuff, any advice on how much people should have their world figured out the, we've touched on this a little, but the multiple seasons figured out versus just a taste when they're pitching and how you go about it yourself. Do you start with the world premise characters? You mean your- pitching, a sh- pitching a serialized show to like a studio or a network? Yeah. Yeah. So 
Like I have all, if you can't tell, I'm the type of guy that, that really likes all those crunchy rules and stuff. Yeah. Like I obsess over them and I, that's the stuff that keeps me up at night excited yeah. about like what happens if a xenomorph does, uh, you know, implant an egg in a dog. Like, like, that. Yeah, like, like that, that's the sort of stuff that I love, but I, I've come to acknowledge that not everyone's brain is wired that way. Sure. Um, and also equally important to me as someone who both consumes and makes, you know, uh, emotional stories uh, is the emotion. Like I, I yeah. like, I always try to start with some core element of my own life or an observation I've seen about other people's lives that I think it has some universal quality, you know, whether it's just like a moment in time in someone's life that you want to explore um, or something personal that happened to you that you never got over that and you, you're kind of unpacking in your mind like why did that moment stick with me mm-hmm. and then I'll kind of ideate on that and try to think of like well what is some like a what if I kind of extrapolate that further and uh, you know almost I'm a genre writer so almost usually that just means like well what if yeah. guilt manifested as a monster <laughs> like, right, right and then and then I'm like okay guilt monster the show what's that gonna look like <laughs> yeah. um, it, but it, it, there's something to be said of like genre and high concept functioning for as sure. a metaphor for a real human experience and I think yeah. that all the best sci-fi and fantasy does exactly that so yes. I kind of reverse engineer from that usually where okay. I, I will come from. And that's where the best ideas I found come from, you know, at least the ones that, that uh, studios seem interested in, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, and you, you always want to lead with that. I think, you know, it's sometimes there's a, uh, especially with people like myself, there is an impulse to start with uh, the world is 2785 and right. and the robot rebellion has been suppressed. But, you know, and then you just you you dump all of this uh, mythology you've created up front uh, yeah. and then you keep dumping and then you keep dumping. And then you're like, by the way, there's a character that's your main character in there. Right. <laughs> um, you're going to love him. You're going to love him. But hold on. Uh, so 3000 years ago, and then you <laughs> yeah. just keep going. Um, but, uh, so it's much easier, I think, to start with that emotional metaphor, why it's personal to you, the inspiration for the show that then they'll start to, it's like campfire storytelling. They'll start to nod and say, yeah, I I did have something like that. And then you say, and I thought, what if that monster was a guilt monster? (laughs) And and they're like, "Hmm?" and then, and then you can proceed to say, uh, this is, you know, this is. Charlie Travis, and he's a, a kid who's always guilty, you know, just like me when I was a kid. Uh, and yeah. then you, you kind of spin out what his want or need is. Mm-hmm. And then you drop the inciting incident, which is the guilt monster appears. And mm-hmm. what does that mean for his world? It turns his world upside down and thrusts him beyond a point of no return, uh, where now, now he can't just be the guilty guy who goes and sulks. He has to go and fix, right the wrongs that he's that he's feeling guilty about before the guilt monster will stop bothering him. Now you have an engine for the show uh, right. that, that drives every episode. That, that is the, uh, the operational theme as hobby would say. Um, mm-hmm. And so n- no matter what, you can always go back to that premise of, you know, the guilt monster is guilting you about another th- problem from your past that you have to go fix. Uh, so hopefully by that time, they'll understand the, the show, they'll understand the character, they'll understand the inspiration, 
And then you can start getting into the fun and games of it. Like, oh, but there are other emotion monsters out there. Right. <laughs> and I'm basically pitching big mouth at this point. But but that's, the, that's I think, where it's they working. started. I think they started yeah. the Liberty Monster. And then they were like, oh, what if we just explored all teenage emotions? Right. And just layering. As, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and then you kind of can explore who their relationships are and how, how this, this new reality affects those relationships. Um, and then you can drop a few ideas of, uh, you know, the, the season arc. If you're doing a serialized show, you definitely want to mm-hmm. say, you know, by the end of season one, he realizes the guilt monster was actually a projection of his own psyche and he himself is the monster and he can control <laughs> it. What does that mean for season two? Let's find out. And then, you know, and, and then you can pitch an idea of where, the, how that would get complicated in season two. Um, and somewhere in there, you would also pitch a few episode ideas, uh, hopefully, right. that will explore how his journey evolves uh, over the course of season one until you come to that climax at, in the finale. Um, and that, I mean, that's the long and short of it. Like, you know, it's you, your pitches shouldn't ideally be longer than 15 to 20 minutes. You know, you want to give them a chance to absorb and ask questions you know, sometimes they'll go longer. Uh, you know, I've, I've pitched on shows that have really dense IP and the world sure. is pretty wild. Uh, so you do need to, a little bit of like showmanship to kind of sell them like right. on what this world is um, and help them understand it. But um, always lead with character and emotion. You know, I think that's the, the biggest thing with serialization. You know, mm-hmm. follow that hero's journey, find that story circle um of you know what is what what is it they think they want and what is it that they needed all along and that will define your series arc right there and then and then it's just sort of like okay how can we have fun with whatever this high concept premise is and you use that as a functioning metaphor for that journey um and then suddenly you'll have a tv show (laughs) that's it and then you get six seasons streaming and yep that's the key (laughs) i've given i've given it all away for free (sighs) if if i see uh travis and the guilt monster on tv yeah i want royalties by the way you deserve all the back end That's great. And to close out, just more generally advice for writers breaking in, or maybe they've broken in, had one of those small breaks in and are entering their first staffing, anything general? Well, I would say first and foremost, I'm going to do the the advice you've probably been heard, been hearing over and over again, which is keep writing. And I'm going to go into more specifics, which is just like from my own experience, you know, I had written a number of samples that got people to meet with me and they liked it, but that, but mm-hmm. it was always like, well, you know, show me, let me keep you in mind. Let me see the next one. And mm-hmm. it was only when I just had that specific piece that, that resonated with those specific people that I just happened to have, you know, been in the right place at the right time with the right, right. sample. And the only, and each new piece, new piece of art that you make a short film that might go viral, catch people's attention you know, each of those is a new iron that you can drop into the fire that will be another chance, you know, and it's a little, it's a little bit like somewhere between the lottery and a calling contest, I guess, <laughs> like yeah. where if each thing that you do, you, each thing you put out into the world to, a, to a different person, it gives you like a 5% chance of, of getting to write full time. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it's been a while since I've done 
probability theory in college, but like 5% chance, 5%, 5% chance. But suddenly you're going from a 5% chance to like a 25% chance, you know, right. uh, that if you just keep finding places to send those pla- send those out. And, you know, sometimes projects you've sent them out and they're dead. And so the, the, the percentage shrinks back down again to 15. Yeah. And that's why you keep making stuff and keep doing stuff. And eventually you'll find that perfect place for you. That, and then when you have that general meeting, you can talk about all those things you did. Um, you know, another piece of advice, you know, that Rad Seacrest, I was talking with him the other day and he was saying yeah. like, um, yeah, people don't like to read, <laughs> so, <laughs> which is uh, unfortunately true. I, that, that's, yeah. that's a crazy concept to me as someone who's a professional writer that all, <laughs> that all I do is read other people's scripts all day and write my own scripts for other people to read, but it's, yeah. he's not wrong. There's a lot of people right. that are busy or they're tired or both. Yes. Uh, and, you know, if you can find a way to catch their attention with something else and then they can say what else you got. And you're like, well, I got this idea I could pitch you, uh, you know, oh, interesting. then it's, it's just another way, you know, don't feel trapped and like, well, I've written 15 scripts. What else do I have to do? You know, like right. you have to, sometimes you have to take a different tack. Like, you know, my wife, for instance, uh, she, uh, you know, she writes freelance for TV and stuff, but you know, her way in was she uh, published fiction. Uh, you know, like, because she, she was having trouble, you know, finding a yeah. way to kind of catch people's attention. And then, then she started patching, uh, sorry, publishing, you know, short stories and like the fiction pool. And then she sold the novelette to um, uh, Alfred Hitchcock's mystery magazine. And it kind of cool. And that's, that's literally the number one mystery magazine in the world. So suddenly yeah. it feels a lot more like, oh, she's, uh, you know, untapped potential, which, you know, right. harder to do, um, you know, an analog to that maybe is like, you know, uh, so those scripts you write, don't just type them up and then send them to one person, then put them in a drawer, you know, like there's so many contests and fellowships and such out there, right. you know, uh, if you can win a, a contest, uh, I think, I know, again, that's another lottery ticket that you're buying, but if you can win one, it's not nothing. You know, I right. have, I have a good, I have a friend uh, who I worked with at Dick Clark, uh, Esteban Quintero, uh, who, you know, he also wanted to be a writer and he, he, he just got staffed, I think this or last year, uh, shortly after he won like the page awards or something. So like, and it was just one more script that he had written, you know, it's right. writing all kinds of stuff. Uh, and so you never know what that, that sample is that suddenly for whatever reason, everybody just says, yeah. yes, that's the one. And, you know, right. so keep, keep trying, uh, you know, uh, beyond that, I'd say just, just keep putting yourself out there, join reading uh, like writers groups and, and, mm-hmm. you know, take an improv class, meet other people, put yourself out there. I think pitching your shows and stuff is just as important and being able to like get out of your comfort zone, you know, taking an improv class at UCB, even though I didn't want to be an improviser, it really kind of helped me right. kind of reconfigure my brain to like get to the root yeah. of a story quickly and uh and to be able to think on my feet when an executive says mm, but can there be a monkey in it and then and then i'd be like absolutely oh you know what i had an idea for episode four that uh, it was a lizard but it could be a monkey uh, you know like and then and then uh anything you can do uh to uh you know i, did I, I think that there's this uh idea that like 
you either are running for president and then you become president, right? Some writers are better at running for president, pitching themselves, being good in a room, you know, improvising. Some people yeah. are better at, at becoming president of just like on the page, I'm going to deliver you a good script. You, it, uh, it's a frustrating thing to say. You have to be able to do both. Yep. <laughs> um, and the more you can work on whatever is is holding you up, I think, even if you just get it to where you're like kind of passable, <laughs> you know, I think that is going to be the the maybe the one of the missing pieces that'll help you become a really successful writer. So you know, just just keep improving, enjoy the journey. Uh, you know, yeah. throw yourself into those little projects, find cool people to make cool stuff with and enjoy yes. the ride. That's my yeah. advice. <laughs> I think it's very good advice because turns out there's not a destination. <laughs> we just all keep nope. having to there is always go on the journey. Climb. So yeah. uh, share some granola with the other mountain climbers. <laughs> <laughs> that is key. Um, and do you want people to find you on the internet? And if so, where, or where's yeah, your latest work? Sure. Uh, yeah, you can find me. I, I'm probably most active on Twitter. Uh, my mm -hmm. Twitter handle is good Aaron, G O O D A A R O N. You know, I'll tweet about, you know, the shows that projects I'm working on. I'll, sometimes yeah. I'll also just tweet writing advice and sometimes yeah. I'll, I'll tweet uh, examples from shows I've worked on and how they evolved. And people seem to like that, especially the Definitely. writing communities. So feel free to uh, check me out there. T tweet at me if you want. Uh, you know, I, uh, my DMs are open as they say. <laughs> um, and uh, like, you know, uh, and let me know how your journeys go out there, listener. Uh, you know, I want, I yeah. want to, I want you to make uh, awesome content so selfishly I can watch it and be inspired by you. <laughs> so uh, get out there and uh, make some cool content. Uh, I want to watch those cartoons, baby. <laughs> yes. Yeah, selfishly, please go make good cartoons. Yeah, people. so I have something uh, to enjoy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much. This has been super helpful even for me and I'm sure will be for all the listeners. Absolutely. Um, so and it's, it's been a pleasure to chat. And uh, I, I'm so glad that this podcast exists. It was something that oh, I felt thanks. like, uh, you know, it was really nice to be able to talk a little bit about specifically the animation of it all uh, yes. with some with a fellow cartoon writer. So <laughs> thanks for having yeah. me. I appreciate it.